I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We've been doing a little series there, and last week Amy uh, continued the journey, and I was gone. I was actually not playing hooky. I was preaching in the city of Calgary, and they said to somebody, you know, it's really amazing when you preach once in a day, you feel like you're not even working, because I'm used to preaching three times, so I felt like I was on holidays, but I actually wasn't, so... Uh, Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. You know, I, I've, I've thought a little bit about how we come to God. You know, oftentimes, you know, we don't think of it this way, but we try to control God. We try to manipulate him. You know, we want him to fit all of our expectations. We want him to meet all of our demands. We want him to, you know, fulfill all of our conceptions about who he is. We, we want to, in a sense control God. We want to, we you know, kind of tell him how to do things. We want him to be answerable to us. You know, we have all of these ideas. We come to him in prayer, and, uh, you know, we basically tell him how to run the universe. And how many know sometimes he doesn't take up our suggestions? Anybody have that experience? He doesn't always do what we're asking him to do. And often when we're reading the Bible, we, we're literally trying to read into the Bible what we want to hear. Or we, we focus on the passages we really enjoy, and we kind of skip over those areas, those texts that demand from us what we do, want, do not want to give or either give up. It's easy to do God's will when we agree with it. Isn't that true? And it's really difficult when we are struggling and battling against what God is saying and our own human desires. And then the will of God is far more difficult. Isn't that right? Of course, there's that little bit of tension that comes into our life. And so as I've already said, we like to tell God what to do rather than listen to what he wants us to do. You know, our conversation many times is a one-way street. You know, we tell God, but then we leave before God has a chance to speak into our lives. We want to be in control of our lives rather than live with uncertainty. How many say that's the truth? We don't like uncertainty. How many say, you know, I really like it when I know what's going to happen? I really don't feel comfortable, especially when there's surprises that are not pleasant. I'd rather not sign up for those things, you know? And so we have all of these angst in our lives. And then oftentimes we have, you know, an issue of misinterpreting what words mean in the Bible. For example, we love that text in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 where it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And we think of all the good. And when we think of the word good, we're thinking of all the things we like. And we don't really think of the text in its context and think about the good that he's talking about there is actually the things that are helping conform us into the image of his son. You see how we do things. And so a lot of times we walk away with a conception of God that is actually not factual. We, we create a God after our own understanding. And so I want to shatter that tonight, if I can. I want to shatter that picture in our mind. You say, really, Pastor, you're going to do that to us? I go, absolutely, if I can. I was praying that I'd be able to. You know, C.S. Lewis, he, he's an amazing writer, and he writes in so many different genres. And in his children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and we've even seen the movie, some of you have seen it, you know, the one I'm talking about, you know, where these children actually enter into a fictitious world called Narnia. And Narnia is really an analogy of the Christian life. And so there's four children. They're from England during the Brit uh, World War II, and they end up, you know, falling through a wardrobe, and they end in this mystical world where there's mythical creatures, and even all the animals get to talk. It's kind of a strange place. How many know what I'm talking about? How many seen the movie? That's very fascinating, is it? Maybe you've read the book. And so they come into this world, and at least the three of them are together when they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. 
And the beaver family want to introduce him to the king of Narnia, which is Aslan. And so we pick up the conversation between them when the youngest child, Lucy, says, the youngest girl, she says, is he a man? Uh, Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. I'm telling you, he's the great lion. To which the older sister Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should rather feel a bit nervous about meeting a lion. How many here could say, I'd probably feel a bit nervous about meeting a lion too, right? You know, they're not that necessarily that tame. And then, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. And then the little Lucy pipes up. You mean he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good, I tell you. He's the king. Now, that picture that Lewis is painting for us is showing us that God is good, but he's not always safe. And that scares us a little bit. Because we like to feel in control. And yet, when God calls us to himself, he's literally asking us to relinquish control and to learn to trust him. And that's a scary thought for a lot of us. We don't know if we're wanting to do that. And so, uh, in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, we kind of find two interesting responses to Aslan, or as we know him, Jesus. And we're going to take a look at two groups of people that I think are very fascinating. We find, first of all, the family of Jesus and the foes of Jesus. You're going to be able to remember those two simple points, right? How they're responding to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, in the first response, which comes from, uh, comes from Jesus' family, and Mark does not tell us what's motivating them. We don't get that picture. There's no sense of this is what's driving them to do what they're doing. But as we hear the story, we're going to begin to get a little idea that we're, we, we probably are very similar to Jesus' family in many, many ways. Uh, now, you know, in ministry, there are extremely challenging moments. And I've been at this for over 30 years, so I can say that. And there's a lot of intensity at times, and there's a lot of demands that, you know, sometimes it's very challenging. And sometimes you can feel like you're losing it. You know, there's a lot of pressure. And let's take a look at Mark 3.20. It says, then Jesus entered a house. Now, most people, scholars I'm talking about, they'll, they'll tell you this was probably Peter's house in Capernaum. Because that's where we picked up the story in chapter 2. That's the only house that's mentioned. And it doesn't really matter which house, but obviously it was some place that people knew Jesus was. And Jesus had made his headquarters in Capernaum, and he was hanging with Peter, so I'm assuming, as they are, that it's actually at Peter's house. And a lot of people, once you start doing things for people, they start responding to that, especially if you have the ability to heal the sick, cast out demons, and feed people free lunch. You're going to really draw a lot of people to yourself. You know, you start doing for people, and you're going to get a lot of people in your life bugging you. Right? I mean, if you start pouring out your life and giving, and pretty soon, you know, they're, not, they're, they're telling you what to do. 
That's how it works, let me tell you. And uh, eventually, you can have it where, you know, I've been a pastor for a long time. We have a large church. I have staff telling me what to do. I have people telling me what to do. And sometimes I'm getting it from every which direction, and they're telling me the opposite things we ought to be doing. And I get all this stuff. And then you have those moments in life where you have what I call the ultimate week. You know, it's the perfect storm. Anybody have an experience like that where you go, this is unbelievable. You schedule things months in advance, and then you have everything happen in the same week. And you say to yourself, how in the world could this happen to me? You know, just all happening at one time. And, you, you know, you, you're, you're just barely making it. You're just kind of going through the week. You're just going, my goodness, help me get through this week. I cannot believe how intense it is with all kinds of experiences. And so Jesus is having this experience. It says he entered the house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. How much fun is that, right? Um, you know, eating was a big thing. I mean, the, you know, we, we, we have a lot of food in our culture, but a lot of parts of the world, people don't have a lot to eat, and when it comes mealtime, that's an important event, and it's actually an event. It's not just, you know, grab a quick bite and go out and do something. I mean, this is like your significant moment. Like, a number of years ago, we went to Mexico, and, you know, every meal was like two hours long. It was an event, and in a lot of cultures, it's an event, and this is what it was like in the culture in Jesus' day. So when Jesus is not eating, this is an abnormality. This is not what you call a normal thing. And so his family now is becoming concerned about what's happening in Jesus' life. As a matter of fact, it says in the very next verse, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Now you have to understand something about the time of Jesus. Let me... Let me Bring us back to that time and paint a picture for you. Do you realize that all of the Jewish people did not have a conception that God would become a human being? How many know that's true? They did not get that. Nobody gave, sent them the memo, you see? They had this expectation that the Messiah would come, he would be a human being, and he would be bringing them, you know, freedom from, you know, the oppressors, and that they would be great things happening, and they would, you know, be restored as a great nation. And so this is their conception of the Messiah. Nobody told them, and at least it seemed very uh, kind of, concealed, if I can say it that way in the Old Testament, so people didn't pick up on that. So you have to understand, here's Jesus. He's born, you know, as we know the story, he's born of a virgin. And the father is God the father. He puts a seed in Mary's womb. He's born. It's a very amazing birth. And then afterwards, it says Mary and Joseph, you know, had relationship and they had children. And there, you know, you read another text in Mark, and he had brothers, half-brothers and some sisters, and so you can imagine growing up in the house with Jesus as the older brother, and he's sinless. And how many of you know that's a little intimidating? I can just see, you know, Mary and Joseph saying, why can't you just be a little more like Jesus? Could you hear that conversation? You know, he's sinless. He never does anything wrong. How many know it's hard to live up to someone like that? I mean, you thought you met a person like that. You haven't ever met a person like that. These guys were living with a person like that because the Bible says Jesus was sinless. He was always understanding. He was always patient. He was always kind. He was the ultimate person. You, I mean, I can just imagine how loving, how gracious he was. I mean, he would have been an amazing person, and everything is going great. And then we start picking up the story 
Because, you know, as we get to Jesus' public ministry, Joseph kind of drops out of the picture. So most people assume he had passed away and now as the oldest boy, Jesus was taking responsibility, probably took over dad's carpenter shop. Everything's going great. Everybody's getting along until Jesus turns 30 and then all of a sudden he thinks he's God. That's a problem. That's a problem. I mean, you know, we talk about megalomania. You know, there are people right now that they lock away. They think they're Julius Caesar. They think they're Napoleon. Jesus thought he was God. You know, there's a lot of theologians today that think that the church is actually the ones that, you know, created this image that Jesus is actually God. That somehow this happened because of, you know, these different councils in the third and fourth century. But I want to point out to you tonight that Jesus actually believed he was God. And actually the scriptures teach that he is God. And that his brothers and sisters had a little problem with Jesus. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, we read this in chapter 7, that his brothers said to him, you know, you ought to leave here. This is Galilee, right? And go down to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. In other words, I think this was not said in a nice way. I think they were basically saying, hey, big shot, you want to be known? You shouldn't be hanging here in the backwoods in Galilee. You need to go down to Jerusalem where the action's at. You know, This is where the political and religious capital is. If you want to really you know, make a mark in life, you need to head down there. And, the, and John gives us this little commentary. They just didn't believe in him. And who were these people anyways? Well, later on, we find out who some of them are. As a matter of fact, how many appreciate the, uh, the epistle called James and the epistle called Jude? Those were the half-brothers of Jesus. They didn't believe in him. But after his resurrection, Jesus actually, it says he appeared to James. And when you're reading the book of Acts, there are two James there. In chapter 12, one of them's beheaded. That's John's brother, the son of thunders. He got beheaded. But in chapter 15, where it was James who was the head of the church, that's the half-brother of Jesus. That's very interesting. But at this point, you know, they're having some real problems. They're going, this is bizarre. I mean, Jesus has lost it, guys. As a matter of fact, in the Greek language, you know, we don't get the intensity of this verse. But let me give it to you from a biblical scholar's point. He says it's far more implicit. That's what James Edwards, the New Testament scholar, says. They wanted to seize him believing that Jesus had gone berserk. They wanted to restrain him. Isn't that an amazing statement? They wanted to take him by force and bring him home because they thought he had lost it. They thought he was nuts. They thought he was insane. How many think this is a picture you've never seen of Jesus? You know, you know, your family thinks you've gone over the edge. Your family thinks you need to be locked up. Your family thinks you need to be restrained. Listen, they are concerned about your well-being. We're going to do a family intervention. We're going in to rescue Jesus today. Can you imagine that discussion? That's what they were doing. That's pretty intense, isn't it? I think it is. Uh, you know that word, he's gone berserk there. It's really, it's found again in John chapter 10, verse 20. Now, this is what his foes said about him. He said, many of them said he's demon-possessed and raving mad. That term, raving mad. That's the term that was used for his family members. They thought Jesus had totally lost it, that he was gone, and they were going to rescue him. We're going to rescue Jesus. I, I, see, we don't even compute with this thinking, do we? This is kind of outside of our realm of thinking. We go, I didn't realize, you know, people thought he was crazy. Well, his family certainly did. The Bible says it very interestingly because he thought he was God. 
Now, where do you come up with this stuff, Pastor? Well, look at John's gospel. You know, Jesus is talking to the Jews. He said, yeah, I saw Abraham. Excuse me, Jesus. You know, Abraham lived about a 1,000 years before now, and you saw him? How many people would say to somebody, you know, I said, yeah, I was talking to Napoleon, you know, last week. You'd say, uh-huh. You'd be smiling, right? You'd be nodding your head and just humoring that person. Come on, how many would be probably doing that? You know, yeah, I just met Julius Caesar yesterday. We went to a party, and there he was, you know, and you're going, where is this person coming from? You know, and so Jesus is explaining to them. He says, yeah, I saw Abraham. And they said to him, wait a minute, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham, they said? Yeah, I tell you the truth, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, watch what happens. And they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why did they respond like that? Well, first of all, you and I have to understand where they're coming from. What did Jesus do? He pulled the God card. You know, back in the story when Moses is going to lead the children of Israel out, he's talking to a bush that's not being consumed, right? That's kind of interesting, you know. How do you, we're going to go down to Egypt. Moses is thinking to himself, I've got to go down to Egypt, and God's told, telling me to deliver these people. So who are you talking to? I was talking to a bush that wasn't burning. You know, how many people are going to believe that? So Moses says, listen, I can't just go down there and say you talked to me and sent me here. Who do I say sent me? And so this is the conversation between God and Moses. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, well, what's his name? And what am I going to tell them? And then God responds to Moses. He says, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So what is the name of God? I am. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, they got upset. Because what he basically said is, I'm God. And so they picked up rocks. Why did they do that? Because in Leviticus, they're instructed by God that anybody that blasphemes like this should be killed. And so in Leviticus, it says, say to the Israelites, if anyone curses his God, he will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him. And so they were only responding as they were preconditioned to do that. As a matter of fact, the reason why Jesus was crucified was because they thought he had committed blasphemy because he said he was God. That was the problem. Now, is Jesus delusional? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked that question. You know, because a lot of people today, you know, they think, you know, yeah, our culture doesn't even talk about Jesus being crazy. They, they talk like, well, Jesus was just a good person. Jesus is just a moral teacher. Listen, you can't go down that track, and we're going to see that in a few minutes. Now, I always find it fascinating that when you start following Jesus, you run into the same problems Jesus ran into. And the Apostle Paul ran into this problem. Some people thought he was crazy. As a matter of fact, as he's standing before the Roman governor Festus, and he's bringing his appeal to King Agrippa, who's actually a Jewish king, and he's trying to explain to them why he's incarcerated and what's going on, and he's explaining his defense before the king. Festus comes out of his seat in Acts chapter 26, and he interrupts Paul's defense, and he says, you're out of your mind, Paul. He shouted, your great learning is driving you insane. In other words, Paul, you're crazy. Hey, Jesus was told he was crazy. Now Paul's being told he's crazy. Paul responds back by saying, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. Listen, anytime 
You start putting God ahead of yourself. Anytime you start willing to lay down your life for the sake of someone you can't see, the normal mindset in the culture is you are a fanatic. You have, you have lost your mind. You're not balanced. Can I keep going like on, on that track? Do you know that most people, Martin Luther, John West, I can name all the great Christians, everybody thought they were crazy. People will think you're crazy when you're willing to give up your life for Christ's sake. They think that's abnormality. William Borden was a young man who was uh, it, born in the early parts of the 1900s. He was a multimillionaire. He was one of the richest people in the United States. He gave everything up. Just a young college student, went to Yale to be a missionary, went to Egypt, and he died before he ever did any ministry. People thought he was insane. You know, Jim Elliott and four other young men went to jungles in Ecuador, and they gave up their life to reach a Stone Age people. And Jim Elliott wrote this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What can't you keep? Your life. You know what? The scriptures teach us that if we're willing to give our lives for his sake, we're going to find life. But anyone that tries to f- keep his life, they're going to lose it. You see, we are living countercultural. if you haven't figured this out yet. And the more you really embrace this and go for it, the more people are going to think you're crazy. But you're in good company. They thought Jesus was crazy. All right? So you're becoming more like Jesus, you know? So just smile. Say, hey. As a matter of fact, when Paul, uh, later on, you know, they're trying to talk him out of going to Jerusalem because every time he comes to a different city, they keep saying to Paul, you're going to run into trouble here. The Spirit of God was preparing him for the sufferings that he was about to experience. And then it says, and when we heard this, This is Luke now writing from the book of Acts. He says, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. These are all mature, well-meaning Christians going, Paul, please don't do this. You're being told you're going to suffer in the city of Jerusalem. Listen to Paul's response. He says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. How many think Paul is quite a character, isn't he? He's just going, I'm I'm prepared to give up everything for him. I am totally sold out for God. That's an amazing statement. No wonder people thought he was crazy. But was he crazy? I don't think so. Let me move on to the second response. It comes from his foes. You know, if his family thinks he's crazy, his foes thinks he's demon-possessed. How do you like that one? So, you know, Jesus is either crazy now or he's demon-possessed. I actually had a relative one time who was drinking too much. I was taking her home, and she thought, said to me, she said, you know, I was chatting with her about the things of God. She says, you know, you're demon-possessed. I thought, that's interesting, you know, from somebody who's as inebriated as you are, number one. <laughs> number two, I said, well, you know, Jesus was accused of being demon-possessed, so I guess I'm in good company. Verse 22, it says, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. Who is this Beelzebub? Well, he was a Syrian god of Ekron. Originally meant something like the lord of the dwellings. That's what Beelzebub means, lord of the dwellings. And by the way, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's actually moving in the sphere of people's lives. How many know that's how he's operating? You know, just like God is moving in the sphere of people's lives, Satan is moving in the sphere of people's lives. There's only two, two spheres happening in our world today. I'm going to shatter your illusion of neutrality. It doesn't exist. You're either in one sphere or the other. And it says in the Septuagint, which happens to be the Old Testament 
you know, in the Hebrew language, translated now into the Greek. By the time they translated it, in the Septuagint, the term Beelzebub became known as a term of contempt. And it went something like the Lord of the flies or the Lord of the dung heap. It's, it's a, you know, the Lord of something rotten and repulsive. Okay, so this was not a, it was a nasty term. Okay, Beelzebub. So they were basically calling Jesus names. You know, isn't that interesting? That people would say nasty things towards Jesus. We're always a little offended when somebody says something nasty to us. Well, Jesus had a lot of names thrown at him. You know, you're a demon-possessed Jesus. You're Beelzebub. You're, you know, you're operating in the power of Satan. So how does Jesus handle the challenges, the charges, the criticisms that he's experienced in the midst of all this pressure, you know, all these demands in his life, and now he's being attacked, right? Some of us going, I'm checking out. This is too stressful for me. Right? Come on now. Uh, I want out. I, who signed me up for this a task? Anyways, I don't want this job. You know, everyone thinks Jesus' life was easy. Let me tell you something. It was not easy. It was difficult. And if you're going to really serve God with all of your heart, I'm going to tell you right now, don't be shocked if it's a lot easy. It can be difficult at times. It can be stressful at times. You can be criticized at times. You can be falsely accused. You can have all these experiences. People can say you're crazy. Some can say you're demonized. Wow, that's strong language, isn't it? Well, if you guys are going, really, Pastor? This is not encouraging us. Now, why do I want to be a Christian? Because it's the only way. That's why. Well, Jesus says to these guys, look, your, your response to me is neither logical nor consistent. I mean, think about it. No kingdom divided against itself is going to advance. They're going to fall apart. Verse 23, so he said to them and spoke to them in parables, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against himself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can rob his house. That's what Jesus had been doing. He had been binding the strong man and releasing the people who were under the authority of Satan and releasing them to be free. That's what he was doing. He was destroying the works of the devil. Now, secondly, Jesus warns against attributing evil to what is good. In other words... We're going to deal with probably one of the most misunderstood texts in the Bible, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Some of you go, what's that, Pastor? And I'm glad you asked. We're going to talk about it tonight. You know, in verse 28, it says, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemy of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. So what were they doing? They were attributing the good thing Jesus was doing to evil, okay? They were negating the work of the Holy Spirit. They, they were resisting the Holy Spirit. And by the way, when Stephen stands before the Sanhedrin, they're about to stone him, he says, you guys have always resisted the Holy Spirit. So what is the Holy Spirit trying to do? The Holy Spirit is trying to bring us to a realization that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's the, that's the sin that will keep you out of heaven. That's the eternal sin. So the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit goes something like this. I'm resisting God. I'm going to stay in a state of unbelief. I'm going to stay in, in a state of condemnation. Now, 
Do you know this warning has always existed? As a matter of fact, even in Isaiah's day, which was 700 years before the day of Jesus' earthly ministry, Isaiah wrote this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What is he saying? He's saying that when you and I try to have an inverted sense of value, when you and I are twisting and trying to say that the things that God says is good is now evil and the things that God says is now evil is good, that's a problem. And by the way, is, are we having a little problem with that in our culture today? We having some problems with understanding what's good and what's wrong? I think we are. You know, As a matter of fact, you know, there's young people walking around, they'll say, that was, was wicked. And what do they mean by that? That's good. How many are already catching on? Even in our vocabulary, we're flipping things. Right? Sick. Well, to me, sick means bad. But when you hear young people, sick means the opposite. Aren't we kind of funny? We're flipping things today like never before. I think we're absolutely confused. You know, we just had a ruling in our Supreme Court this past week that said we're not allowed to pray in municipal buildings anymore. That before we have a, a council meeting, we can't pray. That's against our Constitution. Really? How many know that those guys may be smart, they may have knowledge, but they have no wisdom? You say, why is that, Pastor? I'll tell you why. If you don't fear God, you don't have wisdom. Because I just read it earlier in Psalm 111. It says the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. So if you don't fear God, you don't have any wisdom. You may be smart. You may have a great IQ. You may have a lot of knowledge, but you have no wisdom. Now think about it. Remember back, maybe some of you can remember this, when 9-11 hit and the towers went down. How many remember that? You know, remember in the States, they were concerned about praying and praying. You know, they were talking about no prayers in here, no prayer there. The next day, they were all praying. Do you know why? Because if we ever have a threat to our national security, all of these people that are talking about no prayer are going to be on their face crying like babies. They're going to be scared out of their minds. When you get past where you can't handle life and there's only one place to turn, you're going to start turning there with all of your heart and crying and praying and saying, oh, God, help me. You know? So I'm just pointing out, you know, we have the same problems. Matter of fact, we're living in danger today of misunderstanding God's actual way of dealing with life. You know, we have a misunderstanding of what grace is today. Grace is something God gives us and shows mercy to us to forgive us. But you know, a lot of us as Christians today, we're using grace as an excuse to sin rather than as, as, as grace to escape from sin. Isn't that true? You know, think about what Paul writes in Titus when he's explaining the grace of God. He said, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So the grace of God is teaching us to do the right thing. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. That's what grace says. You know, what, what is really concerning me today is how we're just picking and choosing what we want in the Bible. We talk about God's grace, you know, as if it's a license to sin. Come on now, it's getting real quiet in here. I could go down a whole bunch of tracks right now with you and just start zeroing in on stuff that we're doing. 
Do you know what I find real tragic? This is really grieving me. How many parents, this is not young people. You know, most of the young people that come to, for me to do weddings, very few of them are not living together today. Very few. And these are all Christians. And their parents think it's okay. Folks, we have totally missed it. Can I just say to you guys, listen to me very carefully. If we think that because we believe that you know, Jesus is God, that we're going to go to heaven, but we're living a life inconsistent, and we're not doing God's will, and we're violating his word, and we're living in defiance of it, and flaunting it, and reinterpreting it to suit our passions, let me tell you something, we are deceived. We are deceived, folks. Can I shock you a little bit? I told you, I prayed today that those that need to be comforted would be comforted, but those that need to be discomforted would be. That's my prayer for you today. So that some of you are going to leave here going, you know what, I came to church to be, you know, comforted, or maybe not even comforted, I just came to church and all of a sudden I'm getting uncomfortable. Let me point out to you, when Jesus comes back, he's coming to judge the world. We forgot that. We have forgotten that. Because you see, we have a milk toast version of who Jesus Christ is. Can I just tell you, God's not safe. Let me tell you, God's not safe. He's good, but he's not safe. He's a forgiving God, but he's not safe. He's going to deal with sin. Yeah, but I'm his, I'm his pet. Let me tell you something. He's going to deal with sin no matter where he sees it. Because, you know, if he doesn't do that, I believe that that's a sad indictment about what Jesus did. Jesus died for our sins. We can't just continue in them. We need to understand something. What am I saying to you tonight? I'm saying if you're not living right, get right. Will God forgive you? Absolutely. He's the most forgiving person I've ever met. He's the most gracious person I've ever met. But if we think we can continue in sin as if it's no big thing, let me tell you something. You're standing on the verge of the door of judgment. And God can judge it any minute. Listen, Ananias and Sapphira told a lie and they dropped dead. Don't tell me that we never lie. Hey, come on now. If God wants to, at any moment, he can address our sin issue, just like that. But why doesn't he do that, Pastor? Because he's gracious. Because he's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Don't you know that the goodness and kindness of God leads us to repentance? We need to change our mind. We need to get right with God. You know, there was a generation used to preach hellfire and brimstone and never explain the grace of God. We've gone the opposite direction. We never talk about God's judgment on sin. We just talk about God's grace. And I love God's grace. I love preaching God's grace. But let's not make it an excuse for sin. Because this is what happens when you sin. I get you later, crying in my office, telling me, I messed up, Pastor. And I've got all of these problems now. And I have to say to them, listen, God still loves you. He's not, gonna, he's not here to punish you, but there's a consequence to sin. You know, how many know if Adam and Eve hadn't messed up in the garden, we wouldn't have been in the pickle we're in, right? But you go, oh, that's Adam and Eve. Man, did they ever blow it for the rest of us. Listen, if you and I were in there, we'd do the same thing. They're just representatives of what we're like. How many here, you know the right thing to do and you still do the wrong thing? Come on now. Okay, that's very good. Some of you are honest. Yeah, that's me, Pastor. Listen, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I am just trying to be your best friend. I'm just saying, listen, my job is to warn you and say, look, just do the right thing. Ask God for grace. Ask him for help. Ask him for strength. You know, get things right in your life. All right. 
Do you know sinners and tax collectors actually are less guilty of probably committing the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit than, than those that are learned, religious, or moral? In this respect, wickedness poses a lesser problem to the grace of God than do pride and self-righteousness. Isn't that true? You know, these guys that were theologians actually crucified Jesus. You know, isn't that amazing? You know, the irony was not lost on the early church that the religious leaders who uh, condemned Jesus were the very ones who were awaiting the coming of the Messiah. How many think there's a little irony in that? You know, we're for Jesus, and then they kill him, Right? But they just didn't recognize Jesus was the Messiah. That was the problem. So what can we learn from this? What is Mark teaching us here? Well, James Edwards, that biblical scholar, says, how wrong the church has been to single out Jewish rejection of Jesus as something distinctive. In other words, it was the Jews that killed Jesus. See, that's what Hitler said. That's why he was killing Jews, right? But that's not, that's not the truth. It's a human problem, and Jesus' closest confidants are as liable to misjudging and rejecting Jesus as were the scribes. As a matter of fact, Peter even denied he knew Jesus. Why? He was under pressure. This, this sin is an eternal sin because it has eternal consequences. And so what is the sin, Pastor? I've already told you. It's resisting the Holy Spirit's revelation of who Jesus is. Look at what John says. Whoever believes in Jesus, in him, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. That's why. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a sin problem. You know, why don't people respond to God? Because they don't want to change their lifestyle. They don't want to be accountable to God. What can we learn from 19 is that uh, our sin blinds us from the truth. Do you know, and this is true of all of our lives, if you study psychology, they teach you this. There's a thing called a Jahari window. There's things I know about me that you don't know about me. There's things that you know about me that I don't know about me. But there's things that neither one of us knows about me, and only God does. And that's true about your life as well. And under the right circumstances, you'd crater like a baby. God is the one who's protecting us from those, those situations. Do you realize that? When we pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. That God is actually keeping you and I from things that would actually destroy us. And we don't even are aware of those things. Because we're blinded to our own condition. We don't understand this. You know, as a matter of fact... Sin and Satan has a way of blinding us to the truth. It says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know when you see Jesus, you're seeing God. And a lot of those people were seeing Jesus and they weren't seeing God. Why? Because they were blind. They were blind to the truth. One of the greatest anxieties that the enemy has fostered on many people is that they've sinned by blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. I've had, actually had people come to see me, Pastor, I've committed the, the sin. I know I'm eternally damned. If you have that anxiety, I want to give you the good news. You have not committed that sin. Every scholar will tell you that. You know, Anyone who's worried about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit has not yet committed it. For anxiety of having done so is evidence of the potential for repentance. There is no record of Scripture uh, of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied it. Isn't that great news? Isn't that awesome? He's a forgiver. Do you know who the people are guilty of? They could care less. They're as hard as nails. 
They'll never repent. They've already made up their mind. They've already made a judgment. They're resisting the Holy Spirit. They'll never respond to it. And are there people like that in this world? Of course there are. But then Jesus, you know, Mark now closes. It's, it's funny. He starts with the family, goes to the foes, but he closes on the family. We get back to the family standing at the door. Look what it says here. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrive. They're standing outside, and they, this is verse 31, and they send someone in to call him. A crowd is sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? Jesus asked. And then he looked at those seated in the circle around him, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, I'm going to tell you how significant this statement really is, because I'm going to just talk about who is the true family. Do you realize in an Asian culture, family's everything? You get your identity from your family? Do you know you can't even get married unless your family arranges it? You can't do anything in an Asian culture without family. Your whole life is connected to your family. But what happened was, what happened to Jesus' family? They thought he was crazy, right? So Jesus is now cut off from family. And the moment you and I start following Jesus, you know what many times happens is we lose family. It's true. All of a sudden, our families think we've lost our minds. We're out of sync with life. What's your problem? You're, you've cut off from your family. Many of us have been cut off from our family. But here's the good news. Jesus says, you know who the real family is? The fellow believer. The people who are doing God's will, that's your family. That's your true family. Jesus says, you're part of my family. And you know, I can still remember back as a young person. I was 19 years old. My parents had split up. They were gone. There was alienation. You know, no relationship with family members whatsoever. And I started coming to church. I gave my life to Christ. And we used to sing a chorus. And this chorus really spoke to me because... There's a tremendous need in our, all of our lives to be loved. How many say that's true? We long to be loved. There's a tremendous need in our lives to be accepted. Don't we long to be accepted? We sure do. And listen, God loves and accepts us. And we used to sing this chorus, and this thing was like pouring oil, medicinal healing oil into the balm of my broken soul. And this is what the, I can still remember. We sang it so much. It just etched in my mind, and I, I actually pulled it out of my memory and having not sung it probably for over 25 years, maybe 35 years. I don't think I've sung this in 35 years. And immediately it came to my mind. It's so etched there. Isn't it the power of music? Yeah. It, said, it went like this. I think the Gaither sang it. I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain. I've been cleansed by his blood. Joined heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, which is this life, right? I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. You may be alone tonight, but if you're a child of God, you're not alone. You're a family member. You know what? You know what? I, I've learned something about pastoring. Because after you do it for a long time, you learn things. Believe it or not, you finally get it. You know? And this is what I've learned. Pastoring is parenting. I feel like I'm a father. I'm not just teaching you. I'm fathering. That's why I, I preach the way I do. There's no holes barred. I tell it like it is. Why? I care about you. I'll tell you why. Today, we don't hear the truth anymore. It's not out there. I said to myself one day, you know, if I don't say these things, they're never going to hear it because the culture's not saying it. And people don't want to hear it. But you know what? In the church, I'm going to say it. I'm going to keep saying it because I want you guys to succeed. I want you guys to be coming into the kingdom of God and getting the high five from Jesus. Good job, guys. 
you held the course. Because in this time and age, and this culture, there's a lot of people embracing a lot of nonsense. And the only way to get outside of being a child of your time is to go, either go to another culture and see Christianity preached elsewhere, which I've done, and, or else leave this time zone and go back into history. And then you begin to understand, you know, what it's all about. Folks, we are blind to the problems and sins of our moment. We're embracing a lot of stuff in the church that's not reality. we got to get back to the Word of God. That's so critical. And that's what we're going to try to do here. Listen, Jesus said in the, a, a similar and a, a, a parallel passage from this text, because you know how the Bible works. Matthew, Luke, and John, uh, sorry, Matthew, Luke, and Mark all have parallel, what they call a synoptic gospel. They're telling the same story in different ways. Luke adds this little line in this parable. He says this, he who is not with me is what? Against me. How many are with Jesus? If you're with Jesus, you're with him. But if you're not with him, you're against him. There's no neutrality. Let's get this out of our mind. It doesn't exist. Neutrality does not exist. You're either former or you're not. He who does not gather with me does what? He's scattering. In other words, I'm going to even say it this strongly. If you and I aren't living right, we're actually a discredit to the gospel. And we're actually hindering other people from coming into the kingdom. We're actually a scatterer rather than a gatherer. Make it your prayer. Say, Lord, I want to be not a hindrance to people coming to the kingdom of God. I want to be a, actually a stepping stone rather than a stumbling block. Amen? Well, there are only two kinds of people, James Edwards says, those who sit on the inside of Jesus' feet and those who stand on the outside with false assumptions. Discipleship depends on being in Jesus' presence doing God's will. I want to close with my buddy C.S. Lewis. I've really come to love C.S. Lewis. You know, he's got a lot of good things to say. You know, for years I was wondering, where in the world did he come up with this idea? You know, because he, he mentions it in Mere Christianity. He mentions it with God in the Dock, two books he wrote. And he says this, We may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He's talking about Jesus. How I many know that's where a lot of people think he is? If you talk to people, they say, who's Jesus? Oh, he was a good guy, you know? He had nice things to say. Isn't that kind of where we're at today? You know? And, and there's modern theologians now saying the church made him God. Come on, guys. Jesus thought he was God. That's why they thought he was crazy, right? He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. As a matter of fact, uh, he produced mainly three effects. You know, people either were angry at him and they hated him, or the demons were terrified of him, or people totally adored him. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Isn't Jesus kind of a nice guy? You know, I'll tell you, there was no Canadians at that time. Because <laughs> that's how we are. We're polite, right? Oh, he's a nice guy. Let me tell you something. There's no, none of that. doesn't fly. doesn't work. You know? Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws were broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. And I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish things that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. Well, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and that said the sort of things that Jesus said I'll tell you, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You see, Lewis is saying this. Now, noticed in our text today, that's what others were saying. His family said he's a lunatic and his foes said he's from the devil himself. 
No wonder Lewis came up with this idea. He's getting it right here from Mark chapter 3. Ding, ding, ding. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. And he did not intend to. You and I are forced to deal with Jesus as either he's crazy, he's demonized, or he's actually who he says he is. He's God. And you and I are accountable to him. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Remember how I started this? God is not safe. Aslan is not safe. Jesus is not safe. But he's good. He's good. Let's stand tonight. You know, I love the way the gospel writers write. You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to ask the question, who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? That's the question he's asking you tonight. Who is Jesus to you? Is he crazy? Is he a demon? Or is he God invading the planet and becoming a man? You can see why they had a problem with him. They crucified him. Do you know we can be guilty of crucifying Christ? You go, how do you in the world you crucify Christ, Pastor? You reject him. You reject him. That's how you do it. We continue on in our sin. That's how we crucify him. Wow, that's strong language, Pastor. Yes, it is. God is calling us to himself. Remember I said he's the greatest. He's the most forgiving, most loving. He's the person that loves you above everybody else on this planet. He's the most understanding person. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. But what are you going to do with Jesus? That's the question we all get asked. We're all going to come to the end one day. We're all going to come to the end of this life. And the one big question will be, what did you do with Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Are you doing what he's asking you to do? Or are you just you know, ignoring his voice and doing your own thing? With every head bowed tonight, we're going to close. You know, I'm not going to just break it all down. I'm going to ask one big question. Are you doing what Jesus wants you to do or are you not doing what Jesus wants you to do? I've just changed the question. Do you believe he's God? How many here say, Pastor, I'm raising my hand. I believe he's God. I believe he came and died for my sin. That's great. How many here say, you know what, Pastor? I'm going to keep my hand up. I want to do his will. That's it. I want to do his will. Even if it means... I have to deny myself. How many are you going to keep your hands up? I'm going to do the right thing even if it costs me something. I'm going to do the right thing even if it costs me my life. Now, you know, your life can not always be, you know, I'm going to die a martyr's death. Sometimes it means I'm giving up what I want from life to do what he wants me to do for life. That's a different equation, isn't it? Let me pray with us tonight. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I know how much you love them. I love these guys, but you love them way more. I've never died for them. You have. Lord, I pray tonight that we will have heard your voice. You're speaking into our lives right now. You're challenging us in places in our soul that you want to see changed. Lord, help us embrace it. Help us call upon you. Help us serve you with our whole heart. Help us experience the life that you promise. It's a full life. You said, I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. I believe you, Jesus. I believe that's what you came to do. Lord, help us to discover that life 
And even though there's moments of intense pressure like you've experienced, even though there's moments people think we're crazy, even though there's moments people may accuse us of being demonized, Lord, I pray tonight that we will be true to you. That it will be said at the end of our lives, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy and the rewards of your Lord. I, I just believe for that tonight, Father. Help us, Lord, in the days ahead to really allow you to be Lord in our lives, in our decisions, in our actions. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.